everyone. If you would like to support what I'm doing with Controversies in Church History and help me to expand its reach, please click on my Anchor page and click the support button to donate. Thank you for listening. Ah, yes. Okay. So, this month's lecture is on the Aryan Crisis. And uh, most of you actually were here last month. It would have really helped if you had been because what I'm calling the Aryan Crisis, you know, circa 330 381, is um, the sort of um, fallout, I said the the continuation of something that started at the Council of Nicaea in 325, which my last month's lecture was on. You should go to, by the way, I have a podcast where I record these lectures and... And uh, if you miss them, you can go go there. It's free. You can just uh, download it and listen to it yourself. Um, starts with the Council of Nicaea. And so the first part of my lecture is going to kind of give you a recap of that. But um, the Aryan crisis, so-called, uh, goes in several phases. The first phase from about 330 to 350, I'm calling the strife of tongues. Very biblical. And... Um, a recap of Nicaea, if you don't recall, if you, you just come, uh, didn't come here last time, the Council of Nicaea in 325, uh, codified the idea that the Son of God was of the same substance as the Father, right? This is a technical... I'm not, and by the way, I apologize right now. I'm, 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 you have to use Greek terms in this. I want to explain what they mean and use the English ones, but there's a lot of philosophical stuff going on here. So I, just to prepare, I actually had a sheet of some terms, and stuff. I, I forgot to print them out and bring them for you. It would have helped, like a scorecard. Like, what does this mean? What does that mean? It's very confusing, I assure you. Um, but at the Council of Nicaea, which was called because there was a deacon from the city of Alexandria named Arius, who uh, made claims publicly that the Son of God, Christ, was not the same as the Father. He was a creature. He was not divine in the same sense that God the Father was. And the uh, Bishop of Alexandria uh, tried to denounce him and get him kicked out of the church. Things got out of hand. They called a general council, did the Emperor Constantine. And they decided against Arius and for Alexander. And so that became the first binding. This is the, uh, as we talked about last time, the first binding creed. Not exactly the creed that we uh, we recite today. You'll get, we'll get to the end of that. At the end of this lecture, you'll get the actual creed we're reciting today. Uh, but it did something that had never been done before. However, this didn't, as I mentioned at the end of my last lecture, actually solve anything for a variety of reasons. One of which is that all the terms in this debate were still disputed even after the Council of Nicaea finished its work. I mentioned that term of the same substance. In Greek, that's homoousios. And that term was, uh, we'll get to this in a moment, was very was disputed, uh, not only because it had multiple meanings, um, but it also wasn't terribly clear what they meant of the same substance. What, what substance do you mean? You mean a physical substance? That would be atheism or materialism to them, so they wouldn't want that. So it was still capable of, of having many, many, uh, many meanings. There are many other terms, in fact, that they disputed. I'm going to have to, again, use two Greek terms here, two major important ones. One's connected to homoousios. It's ousia. That's the term that means substance, right? Homo just means like or the same. It should be the same, not like. That's a big, that's a big difference, actually, the same substance. The other term is hypostasis in Greek, and there's really no way I can translate that into, um, into anything else. The best way to put it is a hypostasis is sort of like a, a mode or a characteristic expression, right? And um, those two terms are not clear. Again, what does substance mean? What is a, a mode? What is a mean, being the expression, uh, by the way? And just to give you, this is not clear at the beginning of this crisis. It'll only, won't even be clear at the end of it totally, but um, when I say the word hypostasis, that's normally what we mean by persons, like persons of the Trinity. But that's not what it meant in Greek. <laughs> it's confusing. But there's a lot of terms to get through here. I want to make that 
that confusion clear? Is that make is that is that clear? Yeah, it's confusing. Make things confusing, but clear. Be clear about it was confusing to them. They really didn't have a grasp on these terms. There are many other terms. I won't go through them. Uh, terms like um, generate and ingenerate. God the Father is ingenerate. He's not born. He just exists from you know from all eternity. Again, Arius wanted to say he would, that the Son of God was generate. He wasn't eternal, in other words. And there's going to be disputes. There are Greek terms for both. I won't bore you. It doesn't matter at this point. But lots of disputed terms about how you talk about, you know, God. Uh, besides, of course, the biblical Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Um, and so there's a lot of semantic confusion. You also have a, a couple of different uh, divisions between the eastern half of the Roman Empire, the eastern half of the, uh, the Catholic Church, and the Western part for a couple of reasons. One is that, of course, those people in the Western half of the empire speak Latin. They, for the most part, don't have a great grasp of Greek terminology, Greek philosophical terminology. The term by, they would use, by the way, when they're talking about God at this point are terms like substantia, like substance, like you said, consubstantial and creed. That's where that, that, that comes from. They would use the word persona to refer to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as being distinct entities. And so, and there are lots of confusion there. That's another one. Another a source of this division is that in the West, they never really had a problem with saying that the Father and the Son are one um, in the way that they had in the East. That was, that was never a really big deal to them, even before or after Nicaea. Um, the tendency uh, that could go off the rails there, that could drift into error in the West, was that they made too much of a unity between father and son to the point that some theologians, uh, a man named Marcellus of Ancyra, I'll mention again, he went in the direction of what sometimes is called monarchianism. What that means, monarchianism, is that you make, you make God the Father so one with the Son, the Son basically disappears, essentially. At least that's the criticism of it. So that's the, that's the, way, the tendency of the West uh, in this period. In the East, it's the opposite. They're very insistent on the distinction of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in what they call three hypostases. A lot to digest, I know, but that's, you have a difference of, a difference of, and by the way, it's just a difference of stress. It's not a difference of necessarily belief or um, doctrine. Derek, is any of this East-West thing, does that lead at all to the Greek Orthodox Church versus the Roman Catholic Church? Several centuries later. We're going to get to that, I promise, at Why some point. Why was there such a division between the two? Just from... It, Geography? Or? Sure. Right. Uh, they just had different traditions, basically. It's not a matter of them being... They would have recognized... Before this, they would have not noticed these differences, to be honest. It's the, the Aryan crisis that makes them aware of, oh, wait, you're saying something different. Um, so the, a lot of times these differences aren't... They're not conscious of them. So that's something to keep in mind. Mm -hmm. Hey, guys. Come on in. Uh, grab a seat there in the back, if you like. Um, so was Arius of the Eastern kind of... Yes, he's from Alexandria. He's a Greek speaker. That's that, and that's the distinction. When I say East, I mean Greek speaking. When I say West, I mean Latin speaking. There were people, by the way, who knew both. Not that many, uh, but some. So that, and that's the big division at this point. Yeah, have a seat, guys. Uh, and then finally, the last thing that makes this uh, semantic confusion is that there was this suspicion. I mentioned this in my last lecture of that word in the Nicene Creed of the same substance, homoousion or homogousios. And if you remember the reason why, there are two reasons. One, that Greek word never appears in the New Testament. And people were very, the terms in which they argued for the most part until this point were all biblical. And they were very worried, were some of Arius' followers, that, hey, we're getting too far away from the sacred scripture. The other concern was, if you recall, that term, 
probably originated with a group called the Gnostics in the third, second, and third centuries. And the Gnostics are, um, early church uh, defined them as a heresy. They were a Christian, an error, basically. So you had this term they were using, it was kind of, it was like, I don't know, I can't think of a contemporary, uh, you get the idea. It, uh, uh, it was a term that had a lot to recommend sort of not using it. And I say that as a, as a uh, caveat, because when we're talking about the first 20 years after Nicaea, there's lots of debates going on, disputes still about, okay, is the Son of God the same as the Father? Uh, almost nobody uses that term in those debates. They avoid it for the next 20 years for reasons that will become apparent, I hope. If they don't, ask me the question as to why. Um, so that's the semantic confusion. One other thing I also need to note about this is the background of the empire. Because you recall, of course, Constantine the Great became the emperor. He's the one that called the Council of Nicaea. As we'll get to in a moment, um, his sons will take over from him. He dies in 337 and splits the empire between his three sons. The West is, uh, has two co-rulers, his son Constantine II, uh, and his other son Constans. He's not very imaginative in naming his sons. Um, uh, he rules in the West. His other son, Constantius, is the emperor in the East. So he rules, Constantine II dies in 340, so Constantine is the sole ruler in the West. Um, Constantine, unfortunately, is murdered uh, by a rebel named Magnetius in 350, and um, Constantius in the East becomes sole ruler of the whole empire in 353. And I have to mention this, again, this is, uh, this is a messy, complicated story, as you can kind of tell, all these names running together. Um, Things to note about these two people, Constans and Constantius. Constantius in the West is a supporter of uh, Nicene Orthodoxy, uh, as it'll become known. Uh, Constantius does not. Uh, he supports the, um, he opposes that idea for a variety of reasons. And that'll be important because the emperors will play a big role in this, uh, in this uh, crisis as we go forward. I think the next slide is a map. Uh, no, it's not a map. I thought I had a map there. Maybe not. Okay, uh, never mind. So, uh, I thought I had a map of the Roman Empire on that slide. Anyway, you get the idea. Um, so, uh, let's begin again. After the council, um, the Bishop of Alexandria dies, Alexander. His secretary is elected bishop, that's Athanasius. He is one of the sort of uh, major protagonists of this debate, Saint Athanasius, the great Athanasius. And um, what happens though is, after the council uh, is over, some of the bishops who had supported Arius, some of whom took the Nicene Creed, signed it, one of whom, uh, Eusebius and Nicomedia, did not, um, began to work on Constantine and tried to get him uh, back, tried to get Arius back in his good graces. And they convinced uh, Constantine to try to rehabilitate Arius. And in fact, uh, they actually whispered in his ear, and uh, Constantine actually wrote to Athanasius and Alexandria early in the 330s and asked him to readmit. Arius back to the Church of Alexandria, and Athanasius refused. Uh, this will be a theme, by the way. Uh, Athanasius um, basically is one of the more hardcore people you'll ever meet about. He basically tells multiple emperors to go get stuffed, for lack of a better term. Uh, he refuses. He will not have anything to do with him. And um, so what happens is uh, Eusebius of Nicomedia and some of the uh, other, um, other bishops who have supported Arius um, uh, um, uh, they uh, gather a council of bishops at Tyre in, uh, in uh, the Middle East, in modern-day Lebanon, and uh, they condemn Athanasius and depose him. This is the first of many, many times he is given to be deposed uh, from his see, officially. And I mention this because 
one of the things that's happening here is that for the most part, this is about Arius. In fact, uh, because, remember I mentioned that um, the creed itself had some ambiguities in it. Arius actually took uh, a version of the creed, was presented to him, and, and, and affirmed it, essentially. This is one of the problems with it. It didn't sort of eliminate the possibilities for what you could, how you could interpret it. Uh, in fact, there were a lot of people who took, who signed the Nicene Creed originally, who probably didn't necessarily agree with it. They did it mainly because they wanted to uh, keep unity in the church, or because they were afraid of Constantine, one of the two. Uh, and so they get Arius uh, condemned, um, excuse me, restored, Athanasius is condemned. He will go to Constantinople and confront the emperor, Constantine, and try to get, his, uh, get himself out of this. Um, but eventually, Constantine changes his mind and sends him to northern Gaul, exiles him there, and so he flees. Uh, at the same time, uh, his colleague, Marcellus of Ancyra, this is a bishop that's a friend of, a supporter of um, Athanasius, supporter of Nicene Creed, uh, he's also disposed by Constantine by 336. So you have um, the two major supporters in the Eastern world um, put out of their seas. And, um, and uh, he, uh, in 337, however, when Constantine dies, Athanasius is brought back by um, Constantius in the East. However, uh, the next year at Antioch, another council deposes uh, uh, Athanasius and orders a second exile. He flees uh, in 339 in anticipation of being expelled. Uh, and he will go to Rome, actually go to Italy. In fact, he'll travel throughout uh, the peninsula going to Rome. He's welcomed by the Pope there in 340, Julius, um, who gives him uh, succor there and acknowledges him, by the way, as the rightful bishop of Alexandria. Let's see. Yeah. Um, in 339-340. And um, what happens again in 341, you still have attempts in the East um, to um, bring all this to a head. And what happens is you have uh, this council, it's called the Dedication Council. It's called Dedication Council because they were dedicating an, uh, the opening of a new church. Um, and um, you have 97 bishops meet there, all from the East and all hostile to Athanasius. And they'll adopt, I don't need to go into this too much detail, adopt several versions of a creed, but there, there is one called the Second Arian Confession. There are like 11 of them. Don't worry, you know all this stuff. Uh, but they adopt the so-called Second Arian Confession, um, which, again, condemned Marcellus of Ancyra's doctrines and basically, again, omits the whole idea of homoousios, of, of the son being of a like substance. And at this point, you have Athanasius engaged in debates with these uh, with these. Um, with these bishops, and um, it, they are not just um, Athanasius, but other bishops accuse them of being Arians, and I have to stress something here. For the most part, nobody really believes exactly uh, what Arius believed, um, to give you what the precise meaning of what Arius said about uh, Christ. He said he was a creature. He was a mere creature of God. Um, there are people who are sympathetic with Arius. They never go that far. For the most part, as far as we can tell, Arius is the only one who went out that out and loud and proud and said something so brazen. Most of the rest of them basically thought that the son was in some way subordinate to the father. And this is what, um, this is what the majority of the people we call Arian, this is the thing they believed in one version or another. There are lots of different versions, by the way. Not quite so simple as Arian versus, say, Orthodox uh, in, in this period. Um, and in fact, they respond to this in the creedal statement they give, this, this, this response to this accusation of being Arians. Uh, by saying, quote, how being bishop should we follow a priest? They're talking about Arius, which is a cute way of trying to get out of this. 
Uh, at the same time, uh, oops, I should have gone back. Oops. Yeah, at the same time, we have one more. No, we don't have one more. Let me see if we have it here. Yeah. Um, um, Constans had become emperor in the west. Constantius, remember, in the east, favors the sort of Arian position. Constant does not. They agree to hold us a council to resolve this at Sardica, and I believe is in, in Greece or maybe in the Balkans. I had a map. The map's not there for some reason. Um, it's almost immediately a disaster. They go there. You have bishops from east and west. They agree to meet. Um, but Athanasius is with uh, the bishops from the west. They support him. As soon as they see him there, the eastern bishops refuse to sit. The um, western bishops then release a statement attacking Arianism, and um, which stresses the unity of father and son so much, um, stresses the unity of father and son without really explaining how they're one, essentially, uh, which freaks out the eastern bishops. They split almost immediately, go to Philopolis, uh, forget Philopolis, excuse me, uh, and release a statement justifying the deposition of Athanasius, reaffirming um, uh, the fourth creed of, the creed of Antioch, and condemning both uh, Athanasius Marcellus, but also Pope Julius I. Um, so you're having this knockdown, drag out debate about this in the west, uh, east and west, which um, there are multiple councils, by the way. I'm not going through all of them. There are bunches of them. And by the way, these are all local councils. You can call them synods if you like. Uh, of bishops going back and forth. This was attempt, an attempt at a universal one, just didn't work. Most of these are local. Uh, in 344, there's another one at uh, uh, Antioch. They produce another um, another um, creed, sometimes called the Macrostiche. And I only mention it because um, in this creed, they actually introduce a term, which I don't know if I'll have up on the, on the, uh, the slide. Maybe I don't, maybe I do. Uh, yeah, new attempts at Antioch. Uh, again, to try to come up with a compromise everybody can get on board with, they use uh, the Greek word homoios, H-O-M-O-I-O-S. What that means is like. And the term that's going to be used, the phrase this will translate to, is like in all things. That is to say, the Son is like the Father in all things. What does that mean? Uh, nobody knows. It's supposed to be vague. That's the whole point. It's supposed to be a vague compromise so we can avoid these conflicts, which of course never works. Um, and it's presented to the Western bishops at, at Milan, um, who immediately reject it <laughs> uh, as being not co uh, consonant with the, the with the Nicene Orthodoxy. How is it that we're not all pagans today? <laughs> <laughs> um, you'll with see. All of that. Well, we, well let me let oh me finish this story. Let me well, finish sure. the story. Let me finish yeah. the story. Let um, me get the next. Yes. Um, by 346, the bishop who had been installed in the place of Athanasius dies. He returns to his see in 346. Um, and basically for the next 10 years or so, there is relative peace for a lot of different reasons. I say relative peace. Um, partly because Athanasius begins to distance himself from some of his former colleagues. I mentioned Marcellus of Ancyra. The reason why is Athanasius is coming to the realization that his views are a little extreme. <laughs> you can't go that far in the direction of saying there's unity with the Father and the Son without compromising, of course, the rest of the Trinity. Uh, he, he never repudiates them, by the way. He never abandons them, if you want to put it in those terms politically. But um, he begins to sort of develop his theology in a different way. Uh, and he used this time uh, in Egypt to promote monasticism uh, and uh, to compose some of his earlier writings in which he begins to um, um, write about, for example, he writes a um, work called On the Decrees of, uh, of, Nicene, of the Nicene Synod. 
Even at this point, by the way, when he's arguing for the unity of father and son, he's still not using that word from Nicaea. It's still avoiding this because it is kind of hanky at that time. Um, what's going to change, of course, by the end of this period is the death of Constance because he has been the big supporter in the West of Nicene Orthodoxy. He's been a big supporter of Athanasius. It's murdered by that rebel in 350. Uh, and thus you have a sort of lull in this conflict by the year 350. And the next stage kind of brings about the sort of triumph for a brief period of what we're going to call Arianism here. Um, that phrase there, the whole world groaned, that's uh, a famous um, phrase from one of the writings of St. Jerome, who writing about, this writing about this episode in a later period. I believe the phrase is, the whole world groaned and was astonished to find itself Arian, because basically the Nicene, the supporters of the Nicene Creed are going to go on the defensive and basically be sort of... Uh, you would think by the end of this period that they were going to disappear, that the whole idea of the Trinity might have disappeared, perhaps. So how does this happen? Well, first of all, um, the fact that Constantius, uh, Constantius in the East, uh, who is a supporter of these vague compromises, who basically wants to have something like a creed that will allow people to think that, no, the Son really isn't the same thing as the Father in terms of his divinity. That's the, really what's at stake here, right? And by the way, let me step back for a second. Just, just you know, I'm, I'm throwing all these terms out to reiterate why that matters. Because that, that matters because, of course, if the Son really isn't God, 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 if he isn't really truly God, then Jesus wasn't truly God. And people have been blaspheming God by worshiping Jesus for 300 years, basically. <laughs> Uh, you can't worship, you have to worship God alone, right? So if Jesus isn't God, then things are bad. <laughs> then we made a big mistake. So this is what's at stake in all this. But Constantius, uh, being an emperor, uh, Roman emperors, we talked about this last time, going back to the pagan uh, times, were very concerned about religious unity within the empire. They wanted something that would bring, put all this to rest. Um, fortunately, unfortunately, fortunately for us, uh, Athanasius was the total opposite <laughs> Athanasius didn't care about peace and unity. He cared about truth above all things. Um, and, um, and in fact, even before this, before 353, when Constantius becomes, um, becomes the sole emperor of the empire, you have Eastern bishops beginning to try to um, erect a compromise with the West. They sent a deputation of bishops in 352 to uh, Pope Julius, excuse me, the, uh, the new pope at that time, Liberius. Uh, presenting him with a protest against Athanasius. Constantius then sent an envoy to, to Alexandria demanding, um, um, uh, um, demanding the resignation of Athanasius, which he refused, point blank, told the envoy he would not go. He would only do so if the, uh, the uh, emperor came to Alexandria and told him himself. And again, I can't stress to you, there are lots of people, by the way, there are modern historians who don't like Athanasius that much for a lot of reasons. Everyone admires his courage because this took serious cojones to do this. And in fact, he waits for 22 months to get a direct order. It never comes. Uh, so he successfully uh, fends off the emperor there. Um, the Western bishops will ask Constantius to hold a council to resolve all this because they're getting desperate for this, which they hold in the city of Arles in Gaul. Um, but there, Constantius pressures the bishops into signing a condemnation of Arius. Uh, and Constantius is one of the big, put, um, mo, um, big actors in this. He insists upon this compromise um, uh, pretty much at all costs. Later in 355, Liberius, the pope, uh, wanting to defend himself, calls up for a local synod in Milan. Uh, at where supporters of Athanasius there try to uh, try to affirm uh, the Nicene Creed. Someone brings out the Creed of Nicaea for it to be signed. 
Uh, but there, some of the supporters of the emperor snatch the pen from the, the bishop's hand who holds out the creed and says, no, not that. And they give them orders. They actually say they have direct orders from Constantius that, um, that basically they will all be exiled if they do not sign um, the decree condemning Athanasius. Only three refuse. They are all exiled. Uh, within the next year, um, there's another bishop within the Western Empire named, named Hilary. It'll be St. Hilary of Poitiers, if you don't know who that is. Um, and to give you an idea, by the way, just how confusing all this actually is, until this, uh, until this little synod at Milan happened in 355, Hilary is uh, a Greek-speaking bishop in the West. Uh, he had never heard of the Nicene Creed until 355. When he hears of it, by the way, he's a, he's a big supporter. He actually organizes a local synod to oppose what's going on. He is also sent into exile by Constantius. The next year, Liberius tries to send letters to the exiled bishops, giving, his, him, uh, giving them encouragement, trying to support them. But his messengers are arrested by Constantius, and they send an envoy to Rome, demanding he come to Milan and, can, and meet with the emperor, meet before him. Liberius refuses. Um, Constantius sends soldiers to take him in the middle of the night and bring him to Milan, where after defending himself and refusing uh, to condemn Athanasius, uh, he is exiled to Thrace on the Black Sea. Uh, a deacon named Felix is made bishop of Rome in his stead. And so Constantius is rounding up the bishops who will not um, uh, consent to all this. Now, why is Milan the central point? Um, for a lot of reasons, I don't know. Uh, but I don't know them. Uh, I, I assume Constantius was in... Constantinople. Yeah, it might have been a little closer because it's in northern Italy than Rome. That's one reason I'm pretty sure. Um, later on in the empire's history, Ravenna will be the, the northern capital because it's a lot closer to Constantinople. That's probably the reason, but I, I, I don't know is the, the, my, my, right, my right answer anyway. So um, After this, he finally turns on, Constantius does, Athanasius. Um, he sends imperial troops into Alexandria, and they break into uh, the church he is in while he's celebrating a vigil. And he has to flee for his life and goes into the desert, where for the next five years, basically, he has to move from place to place, supported by uh, monasteries. The monks of Egypt are very much in his corner, as well as by um, laymen uh, in, uh, in, uh, in, uh, in Egypt. Uh, and it's during this period, for the next uh, five years, basically, he, he pens some of his greatest and most enduring writings, his discourses against the Arians. Um, his history of the Arians, above all, his life of St. Anthony. Uh, his life of St. Anthony, by the way, is the life of the first Christian uh, monk, basically, first Christian ascetic, um, which uh, St. Augustine of Hippo will read, will inspire him to take up monastic life. So this is hugely important, the things he does, as well as just penning, and some of these, by the way, are polemics against the emperor um, for the next several years. Uh, the, the bishop who was put in his place is a man named George, and you don't need to remember this guy's name. What's important is that he is a disciple of a guy named Atius, who um, came up with an idea, uh, a doctrine that the son was unlike the father. In Greek, this means anomoios. I think I have the phrase there. Maybe I don't. Maybe not. Uh, no, I don't. Uh, anomoios, which means unlike. And so this is what we call, and I, again, I had a sheet that would explain this stuff to you, uh, which I wish I had brought, but this, essentially, when we talk about Arians in this period, these are people who are really kind of as close as you're going to get to Arius in literal terms. They literally want to make it clear that he's, that the son is not like the father, and therefore not a divinity in the same way that he is. Uh, and these are the ones who increasingly gain the ear of the emperor uh, as time goes on. Uh, at the same time, you're going to have, oh, I already skipped over this, uh, already mentioned this, Eastern Embassy to Rome, 
Send it below. Oh, okay. So we didn't have that stuff there. Okay. Um, yeah, so we did have that. The West is going to sort of, or Western bishops are going to basically submit to the pressure of Constantius by the middle of the, three, by 357. Uh, there was a, the third council of Sirmium, there, there are many different councils, so don't worry about any of this, um, is called in um, 357, which uh, creates a creed which um, Hilary of Poitiers calls the blasphemy. That's why I got that term up there. He calls it the blasphemy. Um, because it basically, um, uh, it says basically the father is, um, that the uh, father is greater than the subordinate son. It avoids terms like homo usios. Um, it, again, uses that language of um, he is like him, basically. Uh, and so this is something that's, um, 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 again, people like Hillary, who's one of the diehards, is against uh, the supporters of this new creed, the bishops, Constantius, uh, force Pope Liberius, who's still, he's in prison in Thrace, uh, yeah, he gets forced to sign it. He actually puts, puts his name to this. And I mention this because Liberius, if you don't know, um, anybody know what the Roman, Marti Martyrology, Roman Martyrology is? It's a list of ancient popes that were commemorated in the Roman liturgy. Uh, Liberius was the first one not to be included. It's because he yes, he broke under pressure and gave up the, the faith for this way. I said that, by the way, I have a lot of sympathy because he was an old man. He was being kept in prison. He was probably in poor health. Um, but they're playing hardball, are these people trying to get them to, um, to come to terms. At this point, you're going to have um, what you might call moderate bishops. So, uh, Liberius and Osseus is supposed to be. Osseus, by the way, is he's a very old Spanish bishop who was actually a, a counselor of uh, Constantine the Great when he was still alive, who was actually at the Council of Nicaea, supporter of his doctrines. He's also forced to sign as well. He's also been imprisoned, so I forgot to mention him. Um, at this point, you're having people in the East begin to get nervous about this. And um, so a man named uh, Bishop of Ancyra, a new one, a guy named Basil, uh, calls a council in their, uh, that city in 358 and proposes a new statement of faith using a new, new term, uh, homoousios. And what that means is, is you have homoousios homo means of the same substance, homoousios means of like substance. That is to say that God is like the Father, basically. He's, he's kind of sort of close, right? Uh, as a compromise. These are people... You got a question? Or no? God is like the no, son, the Son is like the Father. Yeah, yeah, did I say God? I meant, I meant the Son. Very, yeah, good, good clarification there. It is so, so easy to get Trinitarian theology infused and mixed up. Um, and so you have people, and I say this because this position, by the way, that he's like the Father... Uh, will be labeled later on semi-Aryan. And these are what you might, you might use the term moderates. They're people who, again, remember those Eastern bishops have that tradition where they're very, they're very nervous about using, about making the son sound identical to the father. They want to keep in, they want to keep the distinction between father and son and Holy Spirit as distinct. Um, but they're beginning to get realize that there are worse things than, than using that term, homoousios. Um, because you're having this increasing pressure being put on these bishops. Um, there is, again, another series of councils, uh, this time again at um, um, Sirmium, uh, several, uh, several different places. Sirmium again, uh, Rimini in the, uh, in the west. Uh, I won't go through all. There's several of them. You don't need to know all their names. Uh, they produce several more creeds, which, uh, again, um, 
this creed of uh, the creed of 30, uh, 30, uh, 359 to 360 basically embraces a semi-Aryan semi interpretation of uh, the song, that he's like him in all things, uh, while condemning the idea that he's unlike them, right? So this is the kind of compromise that creed that Constantius wants. Um, there's another council the next year in Greece, which is convened to sort of go over these findings and I guess give them their, their seal of approval. It's this, by the way, that uh, St. Jerome is writing about later on when he says the whole world groaned and found itself, uh, found itself, um, sound it, found itself Arian. However, um, in 361, you have another council. This is after, because Constantius will die on campaign in 361. And you have another council held in, uh, held in Antioch, which is meant to be binding. Um, this meant it has pretensions to be a, um, a ecumenical council, which they have yet another uh, creed, uh, sometimes called the Eleventh Arian Confession, which turns back to that uh, that word anomios, and uh, basically just meant to define this for the whole church that yes, God the Son is unlike the Father, and so by 361, with Constantius dead. It looks like the Arian uh, position, the Neo-Arian, that's what sometimes you call these ne this position, Neo-Arian has triumph in 361, uh, even after uh, as Constantine is, de uh, is dead. So again, lots of machinations, lots of stuff. Uh, how does this all resolve itself? Well, you have these problems, you have solutions emerging in the next uh, 10 years or so, and the death of Constantius is kind of what leads into this. I have to mention two things briefly, though. Because in addition to these, this big question of the Son and the Father, two other things get thrown up in the 360s. Um, one is the teaching of Apollonaris of Laodicea. I mentioned him because he will take, he will open another can of worms that will still outlast the Arian crisis. Um, because he is someone who addresses the problem of how, you know, how God can become man, right? How can he be divine and still a human being? And uh, he didn't want to say what Arius did, that God, that the Son was a creature. He didn't want to say that, you know, Jesus was merely a um, human being. And so his idea was that God took on human nature in Christ, the Son did, but that he only took on a human body. That um, it didn't make any sense to him to say that the, that the, the uh, incarnate word should be both man and God at the same time, have two natures, two wills. That sounded like there'd be conflict, right? If you have two wills, there must be not be unity. So he came up with this idea that uh, the divine word actually replaced the human soul uh, in the, the, the human being, Jesus Christ, when he became incarnate. I know this is boring inside stuff, baseball stuff, but it meant that essentially that it didn't denote it, didn't, it basically denuded Christ of his humanity. And when this comes about in the 370s, 360s, upon uh, ours has some influence, it's condemned almost immediately. I mention this, by the way, because it will be condemned at the, at the council, which will eventually wrap up all this stuff at the end of uh, this period. This is one thing that you have here. And, then, and by the way, the implication of this, this, this teaching is that our humanity wasn't fully redeemed, just our bodies, not our minds, not our hearts, not our souls. So it's something they, they, they need to uh, condemn. The second problem is something it might have raised in your mind, all this talk about the Father being equal to the Son, is the Holy Spirit. Because, um, you know, if the Son's not equal to the Father, well, that must mean the Holy Spirit certainly isn't. And that is, by the way, pretty much all the people, Arius definitely thought the, the Spirit was a creature. Um, the, his supporters, like Eusebius and Nicomedia, thought that the Spirit was clearly inferior to both Father and Son. Um, in fact, there are people in, in Egypt in the 350s whom um, Athanasius will write against 
who think that the Holy Spirit is some sort of angel who's there to basically minister to uh, the Son of God on earth. So there are lots of weird beliefs going around about the Holy Spirit. And the thing is, for the most part, Christians weren't in the habit of referring to the Holy Spirit as God. So this was something that wasn't traditional for them. Yet, it was impossible not to have, okay, what do we think about this? And Stathanasius, by the way, is the one who, in the 350s, begins to develop this. Like, wait, wait a minute, okay. If we have the Son partaking of the Father's being, then the Holy Spirit must as well, right? Because how do we become, as human beings, um, part of the life of God? Through the Holy Spirit. So it has to be something divine there. And so you're going to have this sharpening of what will come uh, our Orthodox teaching in the 360s and 370s. If that wasn't complicated enough, but you do have, um, you do have um, tides changing in the favor of Athanasius and his, uh, his uh, supporters in the East and West. What happens, by the way, in 361, uh, after um, uh, Constantius dies, is that, and this is a fascinating episode, that I could be able to talk on this one, is that his cousin Julian uh, is proclaimed emperor by his troops in, uh, in the West, and uh, he becomes sole emperor. And Julian, um, who was raised as a Christian, announces as soon as he becomes emperor that he is a pagan. He's going to restore the old religion to the empire. Uh, he makes a good effort. Long story short, this is a fascinating episode. I have to skip over it because he dies in two years and doesn't work. Uh, long story short, he fails. Uh, we wouldn't be here otherwise if he had succeeded. So, um, um, but it gives some time, basically, because Athanasius um, is... Um, 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 after uh, Julian becomes emperor, a mob kills uh, the guy who usurped his see. He comes back in 361. Um, and in fact, uh, in Alexandria in 362, he holds a synod, which is very important for the development of this theological position, where it, it helps begin the reconciliation process between East and West. Um, that idea of three hypostases had always seemed, it seemed like a polytheism to the, to the Western bishops, theologians, for a long time. It's at this synod that they issue a statement saying, yes, you can have three hypostases. It basically begins to sort of creep toward that position where, hey, wait, maybe he can be both one one substance, but three expressions or three uh, three characteristics this way. Um, and also, by the way, that synod also denied that the spirit was a creature. So you're beginning to have the formation of an orthodoxy that's going to bridge those gaps between those Eastern and Western bishops who are not on board with full-blown, you know, saying that the son is subordinate to the father, right? Um uh, when Julian dies, um, he, um, he comes back, he's exiled again in 364, um, but he, uh, he's, uh, returned, uh, uh, returned in 364 to his see again, uh, the Emperor Valens in the East is the one who d uh, brings him back. And for the last nine years of his life, Athanasius, uh, reigns in his see, basically, from 364 to 373, um, I won't go into too much detail. He'll be the leader of this uh, of this party while he can in the East. Um, he dies in the year 373. He uh, has his uh, the Alexandrians will elect his brother Peter after he's dead. After he's dead, um, but the Emperor Valens will impose another candidate. The Emperor Valens is also a supporter, like Constantius, of that more compromised view of the Trinity, and he will be his opponent as well. He has to flee to Rome for protection, like Athanasius did uh, in 373. Um, and yet you still have this divergence because by, by 364, for the most part, and I should have mentioned this earlier, by the early 360s, both Athanasius but also the Western bishops have embraced openly the Creed of Nicaea and that terminology they earlier thought was uh, kind of icky. They've, that, uh, I was saying that they've embraced that fully now as the only alternative to, say, 
you know, the Neo-Aryan position. Um, but there are still problems in the East. There are still, uh, there are still uh, Eastern bishops who, again, they still can't quite bring themselves to go uh, that far. Um, and um, they're still suspicious of that Nicene formula. Uh, Valens, uh, the first several years of his reign in the East, um, before 369, is uh, occupied with military concerns. But after 369, he begins to uh, persecute bishops who oppose his policy. He tries to impose, again, uh, creeds like uh, the earlier creeds, which, again, meant to sort of paper over these differences. Uh, bishops who uh, failed to approve uh, were threatened with fines, imprisonment, exile, and sometimes death. Uh, and so he'll be the, the new persecutor of um, uh, the uh, Nicene party in this period. And what happens after uh, Athanasius' death is that uh, the leadership passes in the east from, uh, from him to bishops, a couple of bishops, in, the, um, um, in what is modern-day Turkey, sometimes called the Cappadocian Fathers. St. Reg- uh, Basil of Caesarea is the most important one. Um, he's from a noble family, becomes a bishop of Caesarea in modern-day Turkey. And um, he will be essentially the leader of, of, uh, of the, the Nicene party after Athanasius' death. Um, in some ways, another magnificent saint, by the way. Uh, just as tough, just as um, obstinate as Athanasius, uh, the Emperor Valens um, uh, actually admired him, even though he was his, 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 uh, his uh, um, ardent opponent. And... Um, uh, he, he, along with his uh, younger brother, Gregory of Nyssa, um, and Basil, by the way, was a great churchman. He was a great administrator. He was a very, um, he's one of these sort of great, uh, I don't know what you call it, Athanasius was kind of the first of these new breed of, new in the fourth century because the church is allowed to exercise, you know, its authority. Um, um, sort of, I don't know how, how you put this, but they're, they're sort of like prince bishops. They're, they're just good at governing. Really good. His brother was not. <laughs> he was a retiring scholar. He wanted nothing to do with conflict. So naturally, his brother tried to make him, made him the bishop of, of Nyssa, which he was not happy about. Um, but they're both great theologians, especially Gregory of Nyssa, his brother, because they're the ones who eventually clear up this, this confusion between the terms in Greek, ousia, substance, and hypostasis. They're the ones, Basil and especially Gregory, who make it clear that, okay, you can have one substance, but you can have three, you know, characteristic expressions as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that partake equally of that one substance, that one being. They're the ones who give that interpretation. and make That sounds clear to us, by the way, or clear, as clear as it can be to us. We've had a couple of millennia to sort of get used to it. This was something that was, again, they needed to do in the, uh, uh, in the fourth century. Uh, and they are the ones who um, um, clarify those terms for us. Uh, as well as one other Gregory, I'll get to him in a moment, another Cappadocian father. So by the end of this period, 377 or so, you're beginning to have both, I want to say, political solutions. The West is more or less on board with, with uh, Nicene Orthodoxy. The emperor, who's the brother of Valens, by the way, Valentinian, he's on board with Nicene Orthodoxy. The last uh, bishopric in... Um, in um, in the West that is actually occupied by a quote-unquote Arian bishop um, gets replaced in 373 by St. Ambrose, who is, of course, a, a saint and a supporter of Orthodoxy. Um, I should have mentioned this before, that the, the main areas that are supporting this Arian uh, interpretation of the creed uh, are in uh, basically in modern-day Turkey, in Constantinople especially, in the capital. That's why it's so strong. It's around the emperor that this lettuce exists. 
But in the last four years of this of a decade, you begin to have the triumph of, of, of Nicene Orthodoxy, as we call it. And the first reason is something fortuitous, or something outside of uh, the church, basically. Because um, you have, uh, in the 370s, uh, Huns from Central uh, Asia pushing Gothic peoples who have, uh, live uh, just outside the borders of the Roman Empire in the east, drive these Gothic people to seek refuge in, within the Roman Empire. The Romans take them in, they settle them in camps, and then they badly, badly mistreat them. I mean, really badly. Uh, such that the uh, Gothic peoples raid a, raise a great Confederate army, and the Emperor Valens goes there and gets wiped out at the Battle of Adrianople in, uh, in 378. This is a huge, by huge turning point, not just in the church's history, but world history, because two-thirds of the legions are killed, as well, along with Valens. It's a devastating blow uh, to Rome. Um, but this also, of course, gets rid of the guy who was persecuting the Nicenes in the east. Uh, and it brings to the fore, because the western emperor now, Gratian, appoints a soldier named Theodosius to go from the west to the east and become emperor. And Theodosius is a big supporter of, of the Nicene Creed. Um, odd, his name's Theodosius. He's actually a Latin-speaking uh, um, uh, Roman. But he goes to the east. And so now you're going to have the emperor turn in favor of Nicene Orthodoxy. Already mentioned Ambrose replacing the Arian bishop of Milan in 373. You also have um, uh, Liberius's successor, Damasus, holding a synod in Rome in 377, which condemns Apollonaris of Laodicea uh, and confirms the divinity of the Holy Spirit. So you're beginning to have this come together uh, at the end of the 370s. Um, as well, a council under Ambrose at Sirmium in 373-9-380 uh, officially condemns Arianism in the West. So you're having this pretty much complete triumph of, uh, of uh, Nicaea and its ideas in the West. Um, early on in the 370s, a group of bishops from, uh, in Ant from Antioch, a delegation is sent to Rome. They reconcile with Damasus, so you have some reconciliation there. And... Um, in 380, um, a man who was a childhood friend of Basil of Caesarea, also one of the great Cappadocian fathers, Saint Gregory Nazianzus, um, goes to is actually goes to Constantinople um, at the request of well laity in Constantinople, the remnant of the Nicene party. They're a minority; most people support the Arian position in the city, uh, and he is one of the great orators and theologians of his age. And he goes there. And um, he sets himself up at a chapel, which comes to be called the Anastasias, in, uh, in Constantinople, and preaches a series of orations, they're called the Theological Orations, um, on the nature of the Trinity. I recommend them to you, by the way. They're a little bit of a hard read, but they're really wonderful expo expositions of what we mean when we say we worship God as Trinity. Um, and he has even Arians flocking to his to his to listen to him speak. He's a, a great orator. Um, yeah, not much of a churchman. Again, Basil tried to make him bishop. He refused. Uh, this happens, by the way, in the ancient church. Somebody's really really capable. They just sort of force them and ordain them. <laughs> that's the one way to get. I always thought it was that's a fun way to get rid of your clergy shortage. You just forcibly ordain them. Um, but uh, he goes to Constantinople. And in fact, by the way, um, he is attacked literally by Arians. Um, literally, at one point, he is um, he is attacked physically at the altar by Arians in the city. Wants to flee. Um, the people, his congregation, basically beg him to stay uh, and get him to stay. But at the end of three eighty, Theodosius arrives in Constantinople. He demands that the Arian bishop of the city um, um, 
submit, um, uh, accepts uh, the Nicene Creed. He refuses. He has him deposed. And he in installs Nazianzus as bishop in 380. And then finally, which brings all of this crazy, confusing episode to an end, he calls for a council of bishops to meet in Constantinople in 381. 150 Eastern bishops, joined later on by a couple of representatives of the Pope, uh, confirm the Nicene Creed, but make additions to it. And particularly the additions about the Holy Spirit. Um, I believe in the Holy Spirit. Uh, I've already forgotten it. Okay. I believe in the Holy Spirit. The Lord, the giver, Lord, the giver of life. The Lord, the giver of life. That is the part of the creed they mostly alter. Again, for reasons that should be apparent. They've already had this discussion. They've already got this idea. Okay. They, they don't use the terms, by the way. They're groping toward the solution we know. Three co-equal persons. Because they have to be sort of partaking of... God's life, in essence, for us to be to be being part of God's life, to become children of God, right? Um, they also, of course, condemn Apollonaris in this uh, in this council, and in and this will be, of course, the the second ecumenical council of the church. This is uh, the first seven, if you recall, are recognized by both the Orthodox and the Catholic and Catholic Church as being binding. What's interesting about this, by the way is it was not recognized at the time as being ecumenical. There were, for the most part, only Eastern bishops there. Uh, and in fact, it, apparently people forgot all about what the council had did uh, until 451. This will be another lecture, by the way. In 451, the uh, fourth ecumenical council means at Chalcedon, or Chalcedon, I don't pronounce it, Chalcedon, um, discussing other Christological matters, right? Uh, and at that council, they produce the copy of the creed that we recite every Sunday, at Mass. And it's then that at this council, which is recognized as being ecumenical, and in fact, by the way, it's interesting, there's, there's a debate to this day among scholars, how authentic, this, was this the creed we recite, actually the creed that happened in 381? Um, there are, by the way, good scholarly reasons for thinking it is. In fact, the church's tradition is clear. Yes, it is. This is the creed that was produced in 381, but they it was basically forgotten about for 70 years, which, by the way, this is not something that, that is rare in the church history. We tend to forget things. <laughs> the church has lots of beliefs, and sometimes they kind of get misplaced. So if uh, this is the creed that yep. was agreed upon mm -hmm. in Constantinople, mm -hmm. why do we still call it the Nicene Creed? Because it's harder to say the real, 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 uh, the real term, which is Nicene Constantinopolitan Creed. That's what it's oh. officially supposed to call it. So that's the reason why we do that. Easier to say. <laughs> uh, but no, technically you're right. That's a good question. It is officially the creed we recite every, every week is the Nicene Constantinopolitan Creed. And uh, you can go, you can find this on the internet, you can compare the two, by the way, what they add and what they change. It's very fascinating. But it tends to go along with uh, what Claudia just talked about. How am I doing on time? I don't want to say what Okay. I, I think I'm doing okay on time. Okay. So, uh, thus ends, and this is, again, for the most part, there, there are, I shouldn't end it totally. We'll get to this in a moment, but um, thus, for the most part, ends the so-called Arian crisis or Arian controversy of the 4th century. That will be orthodoxy going forward. For the most part, it's unchallenged. And to this day, among the Orthodox and the, and the, uh, the, and the Catholic Church, for the most part, it is not. What are the legacies of this crisis for us? Well, a few things. One is that this, the end of this period marks the real emergence of a Christian view of the world in general, in which, you know, trying to work out who God is in a Christian sense. I mean, we have no he is. We know he's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, because that was revealed. What does that mean? What are the consequences of that? And what are the reasons we have for believing that? That's what, you ha what is happening in this, in this period. 
And um, one of the things this means, by the way, is that the consequence of this is that, that the polytheistic view of the world, which had dominated pretty much all of human existence up until the late antiquity, is going to begin to recede for a couple of reasons. One is once to begin to embrace this notion of the Trinity. I know all that gobbledygook I just spouted for the last hour or so. It's kind of like in your head. But it means that, that people are going to conceive of the relationship between God or divinity and nature in very different ways going forward. Very different. I don't even have time to discuss it. It's so profound. Um, it's also going to recede, by the way, because the Emperor Theodosius, who goes down in history as Theodosius the Great, is the first emperor to make Christianity the legally binding official religion of the Roman state. That is to say, if Theodosius will begin perse persecuting other religions, they'll disappear as a matter of course, partly because of uh, imperial support, partly because of persecution. So after Theodosius, uh, paganism begins to recede. Uh, the first uh, persecutions of Jews will begin at this point um, uh, after Theodosius' reign. So, but you're going to have that new worldview emerging. One of the things to note about this is that one of the uh, is the relationship of the whole idea of the incarnation becoming something people just believe as a matter of course, because that's something that's. Um, I mean, it probably it offended pagans actually. It offended probably offended Jews as well. And this is, by the way, what's behind this, you know, I mentioned this, you know, what's at stake in this, this, this debate with all these highfalutin terms. You know, um, one of the things that bothered Arius, I think, and a lot of these people is, okay, you have the one high God, right, the transcendent. He's above time. He's beyond. He's eternal. He's all this stuff. The idea that he could be mixed with something changeable, something that dies and decays like a human being, was hard for them to take. It almost seemed to sully the transcendence and the purity of God. That's what really what, what was in the back of the minds of people like Arius. Um, in fact, Arius's idea, by the way, that you know Christ or the Son of God was merely a messenger that was sent by God, has lots of parallels with ancient pagan thinking. There are ancient pagans who had no problem saying there was one ultimate God, right? What they said, well, there's lots of other divinities that they sent as messengers to mankind. And so Arius's idea is actually kind of it kind of it kind of compatible with that. The problem with it, of course, is that if again, if you don't, if Christ wasn't really God, then you don't, then of course, we as human beings don't have really have access to God, do we? This is one of the reasons why, of course, because um, you, you might have gotten the impression some people do from that thing uh, that that uh, that narrative I just gave you that well, a lot of this had to do with power, and it did to a certain degree. But it also had to do with the fact that people in the Roman Empire in the 4th century wanted a greater intimacy with the divine. And Arius's idea is very, it makes him distant and aloof. In fact, he actually says it at one point, God is totally aloof and alone, right? Uh, the Trinity, of course, is very different because it means God is sort of, well, when we say God is love, what does that mean? It means he is mutually giving, right? Father, Son, Holy Spirit, mutually giving. Also means, of course, God when he did come to earth. And that means, by the way, that he can come to earth and make changes to human society. <laughs> uh, and more to the point, he can leave an institution behind him, the church, which, because it has God himself's authority, can make changes to human society. This is going to reshape the ancient world in all sorts of ways, which I don't have time to detail. So huge changes in the offering. But of course, as I already detailed, of course, it also opened up other, of course, concerns about, okay, if Jesus is really God, is he God, does he have only one will because he's the son of God? Does he have two wills? Does he have one nature? Is he a super being because he's become man too? 
These are the things that are going to be the subject of the future ecumenical councils, deciding how is the son a human being and God at the same time. Because in a sense, in a sense, this, by the way, is beyond reason itself. But we are reasonable creatures. God is the Logos. God is reason himself. We have to have reasons for this. So there will be a future with a lot of conflict in it, uh, despite the resolution that you have here. And then finally, just a couple of observations about this, again, this messy, confusing uh, controversy that I've just outlined for you. One is that, as weird as it sounds, as awful as it may sound, I think it's a hopeful thing that God works through political messes like the Aryan controversy. And I say that because one of the things you should note is that, notice in that, that story I just told you how often this group of bishops held a council or a synod and said, no, this is the definitive thing. How many times uh, people had the bishops or, or the uh, emperor on the side said, no, this is the true faith. And they had power. They had the upper hand. Um, you know, oh, we've got control of the institution, therefore we're right. Didn't work out that way, did it? Right? What this means is that um, how things turn out is ultimately in the control of God's providence. It's beyond our ability to control events. This is that big word there, contingency. If you don't know what that word means, it means that things are not predetermined, right? There's not a, it's not set in stone. And, you know, God's uh, providence works that way through those contingent events, through Valens getting killed, through, um, you know, through the reconciliation of Athanasius with those Eastern bishops. You know, it really, that's when those things turn, when you have those Eastern bishops who begin to sort of change over time. Uh, so it's not, my point is it's not mere politics that produced the Nicene Creed. It's people, well, it's people like Athanasius who were damned courageous, right, in many ways, but also a lot of other things that you know, we see in providential terms. <laughs> Second observation is that, um, you know, <laughs> went through the entirety of the fourth century with having these dire, dire questions about the nature of God not be totally settled, right? Um, you know, what would you think if you were an ordinary Christian going through that time period and your bishops are at each other's throats about this stuff? Well, how do we, you know, does that mean the faith is uncertain? Does that mean we can't worship? Well, no, it doesn't, right? You know, we all, they all believed, all those combatants in that debate, that they're, you know, the Father and Son and Holy Spirit was something revealed. They just couldn't quite get the reasons down. And I mention this because, you know, sometimes in life, um, you know, um, uh, God allows conflicts like this. To, to, which might be, by the way, distressing <laughs> to us. It might be kind of a, you know, it's a distressing thing to have authorities we're supposed to, you're supposed to revere at each other's throats, right? To be divided. What are you supposed to do? Well, and sometimes, you know, we have to believe without having all the, the answers worked out for us. I say this because we do have to have faith. They will have answers. We believe in truth as Catholics. Um, I haven't mentioned it. I was going to mention it. I wouldn't make that lecture any longer. There are some modern historians who really don't like Athanasius. You know why? Because he was so insistent on being right. <laughs> he sounds arrogant to them. Uh, I would counter with this is that I, I think he thought he was right because he believed truth could be known and found and understood. Even when it's not always, you don't have the, all the exact reasons why. And by the way, that faith eventually produced reasons why. Eventually it did come. But it does not necessarily come when you want it or think you need it. God has, you know, it's, it's colloquial to say this, that God doesn't work on our schedules. He does work in our favor, right? Um, you can have faith in uncertain times. It's not impossible. The faith is not unknowable. Uh, it's not too misty-eyed. You don't need to have a PhD in theology or history to understand it. Um, um, it is for everyone, basically. Um, and finally, 
lastly, I want to emphasize the role of the laity in all this. I kind of did in passing, but um, John Henry Newman in the 19th century, the, the recently made, re recently sainted John Henry Newman, wrote a book about the Arians of the fourth century and, and pointed out that it was the laity in many areas that kept the Nicene faith alive when their bishops had abandoned it in the East. Um, more particularly in his flight to the desert, uh, Athanasius couldn't have survived. The monks were very helpful. They weren't that numerous. He needed the help of the lay people uh, to survive. Uh, I mentioned Gregory Nazianzus, who uh, was called to Constantinople by lay people for the most part. He had support of some bishops. But uh, when he tried to flee, they begged him, saying, please don't take the Trinity from us. And um, uh, my point is, is that, you know, we all should imitate, try to imitate anyway, the courage of an Athanasius. But even Athanasius needed support. So for us, you know, we're kind of living in uncertain times. If you have priests, if you have bishops that are, you know, like that, they need your support and need to help them and stand up for them. You are a part of preserving the faith, too. Even though they're the ones who have the authority, you are involved in passing on the, the truth of the love of God as it's come down to us from Christ and from the apostles. And that is the end of the lecture. Thank you guys for listening. really appreciate it. <laughs> Uh, any questions? Uh, any questions?